Hello, everybody, and welcome to the fifth season of One Nation Under Whiskey. I'm your host, Whiskey Cherub Joshua Hatton. I'm joined, as always, uh, by my my good friend, my business partner, my, my main man. Well, not my main. I don't have like a main. I guess I do have a main man. Wow, you you gift with one hand, you take away with the other. <laughs> well, I just you know for. For those of the, that don't know us, if I just said my main man, then people may assume that we're a couple, and we're not a couple. I'm a married man. You're a married man. We have our wives and kids, but... Wow. This is unraveling. We're not a couple. <laughs> <laughs> I use the royal we to describe <laughs> us. We have to be a couple. I try to tell you this every time I wake up in your arms. We are not a couple. We are not a couple. You do. That's true. You do say that every time. There's, there's no denying <laughs> yeah. it. Um, question. Okay. Quick sidebar. Yep. Okay. I'll take it. Do we have sound effects for fireworks and champagne corks for earlier when you said welcome to season five? We do now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad the listeners got to enjoy it and then they got to hear me asking the question. Do you think if we get, not if, when we get to season 12, if we can do like a 12 something something, 11 something something, 10 something something, five no. golden seasons? <laughs> That's a long way. From- Four yawning <laughs> listeners. Three, drams in the hand. Two, two hangovers. And Alan Partridge in a pear tree. Well done. Anthony Levinson, loving that joke. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jason, I cannot tell you how excited I am that that we've done this now for four years. We're now on our starting our fifth year. Looking back, do you? Well, I guess looking back, I'm trying to think if I if I ever looked forward to you know <laughs> what seasons three, four, five looked like. Like, I don't think I had 2020 vision looking forward, but I definitely have 2020 hindsight. <laughs> and it's been a great four years thus far. I, I, I just I'm just so excited for year number five. I am. That was a lot of 2020 going on a few moments ago. <laughs> that's right. Was one of them the year? That that's 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 the year that shall not be named 2020. <laughs> mm. No, I still I still just think of sitting on David Stark's couch. Mm-hmm. This is not a casting call story, but sitting on David Stark's couch at his newly opened bottling hall mm-hmm. in uh, Thornhill in the south of Scotland and interviewing him for what, 17 minutes so that he would fit within the 45 minute podcast wow. that was going to be number one, the, the first one out the gates <laughs> and it just wasn't clear what that was ever going to look like mm-hmm. and then and then we just did it, which is kind of the story of our pro-life is we have a conversation, we have a few ideas, and then we just do it. And then we just do it, yeah. And, and to have completed four full years of that is is mind-boggling. Absolutely mind-boggling. And as we said, towards the end of season four, to think that we'd be asking people to 
to not only be open to being interviewed, but to also record their own file to their laptop, which they would then (laughs) save and then deliver to us in in some way, we transfer Dropbox, what have you. Like the, the asks that we are making of people and folk have gone along with it. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, that, that, that part continues to be remarkable to me. And again, as I said at the end of, of season four, knowing there's a global listenership, knowing that we're getting emails from Australia, which we didn't get into the mailbag episode, but we will have in this episode. We will indeed, we will indeed. And the Philippines, where Jigs wrote in to say thank you. Mm-hmm. Yep. First and and Scotland, where Dr. Matt wrote in with a follow-up. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, all of our American friends. It's, yeah, I, I love the fact that this is global. And I'm, yeah. You, it's the type of thing you dream about when you kick off a podcast. Mm. Yes. But to have completed four full years of that and to embark on year five. Fantastic. It's such a treat. I'll tell you, I, I I won't soon forget us going into the Ardbeg distillery and uh, listener John McCorkle had mm-hmm. had heard your laugh, either your laugh or my laugh, and said, are, are you Joshua and Jason? Like, people, we, we go around and people know our laughs, people know our, our voices, and it's kind of an unusual thing, but it's really fun to be to be bumping into people here and there in whiskey circles saying, oh shit, I listened to your podcast. Thank you for, you know, the stuff you guys do. It really has been a remarkable ride. Yeah, same thing. And I think it was the same trip at Brook Laddie where we were standing outside with Jess and Sweet Scott Mm -hmm. and and Andreas. Mm -hmm. And this chap just walked past, same thing, heard me laugh, did a double take, came back. Are you Jason and Joshua of One Nation Under Whiskey and Single Cast Nation? And yes, yes, we are. Oh boy, what have we done? And then, yeah. you know, with 2020 being a good year for the podcast, shitty year for everything else, but a good year for the podcast, we haven't been out in the world. No. I don't know, you know, we don't have more of those types of stories, but I'm yeah. excited for for more of those stories to, to happen. I, when you said uh, Arbeg, uh, distillery and John McCorkle there. Were you were you leading the podcast in a particular way? Were you setting us up there? It felt transitiony. It did feel transitiony, but you you sir are mistaking me for a smart person who does things in a in a purposeful manner and and I'm not. I just it, it you know what it is? It's kismet, Jason. It's kismet. It was meant to be. <laughs> Can I tell you what I'm imbibing on in honor of today's guest? Only if I get to tell you what I'm imbibing on as well. Always, always, always. In preparation, don't use that word every day, for this episode, I scanned my shelves and and pulled some bottles from the art bag section mm-hmm. off my shelf. And, and I... I swear this is true. I did not know that I had an open bottle of 2009 Supernova Amazing. at the back of my Ardbeg shelf. <laughs> I I even did a Google search because it's the 58.9% mm-hmm. and the L code on the back 
is L9. And I still did a Google search. I do the giggle search. That's what I do. <laughs> you do the giggle search? I do search? the giggle search. I do. I, I do. I do. And, and Google told me that all, everything I was seeing with my eyes is true. The 2009 supernova release was bottled in 2009, 2009. That- the L9 code, huh. and was 58.9% alcohol. So I am drinking 2009 supernova, which... When I woke up this morning, I did not think that was in my future. And I'm very, very happy. There you go. Well, I I also uh, participated in a little preparation. Uh, in a way, you can say a little preparation H. Uh, I, whis- I was hoping you would say that. Because <laughs> the whiskey I have is, is from the Highlands, hence H. Um <laughs> <laughs> Preparation Highlands. And what I poured was also a 2009 release. So in 2017, Glenmorangie re-released their Astar whiskey, which is uh, basically first fill bourbon. I think there may be a little bit of second fill bourbon in there as well. That one was bottled at 54.2. The 2009 release of Astar is bottled at 57.1. And this was the follow-up to one of my all-time favorite Glenmorangies, which unfortunately I don't have a bottle. And it was called the Glenmorangie Traditional. And and again, it's it's that first and second fill bourbon cask matured Glenmorangie. And it does all the things for me when it comes to Glenmo. So I'm very happy to have... I'm very happy that I still have this bottle. And I think today's guest a perfect occasion to to crack it open once more. It absolutely is. Uh, and just as you talk about us having Dr. Bill Lumsden on today's podcast. Oh, that's good. Here we are, first episode of season five. Mm-hmm. And I, two things here. I think back to the first episode of season four, mm-hmm. where we had John Glazer. Mm-hmm. And John Glazer was somebody that we'd wanted to have on the podcast mm-hmm. for a while. The stars just hadn't aligned. Mm-hmm. As we sit here today introducing Dr. Bill, we've wanted him on the podcast for years and years. Yep. Yep. And finally the stars aligned. And he was one of those people good enough to record from home, mm-hmm. record to his own system, drop the interview from his end, you know, to us. We asked Dr. Bill to do things. (laughs) This is going to sound, this is going to sound good. But we asked Dr. Bill to do all sorts of things that he didn't know how to do. And damn if he didn't put up with us and figure it out. Bless him for that. Bless him. And and I would, I want to clarify something though. I would say it was, I would say the the Astars aligned. See what I did there? <laughs> uh, I thought you were going to say we put him over a wooden whiskey barrel and showed him the 50 states, but that's... <laughs> that's not a saying. It is now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, oh, gosh, that movie. It's I so love, bad. love, love revisiting that movie. Horrible bosses. Oh, my gosh. On, on the surface, is it is it a movie that's particularly... Interesting when you read the synopsis. Not really. Mm-mm. 
did Jason Bateman and Jason Sudeikis and oh, the guy the from guy? Always Sunny in Philadelphia, yeah, yeah. whose name I always forget, but Jamie Foxx, Jennifer Aniston, yeah, uh, even 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 Kevin Spacey, which I know that's a it's a trickier name to bring up these days, but mm-hmm. what a movie! And the the little blooper reel at the end. Oh my gosh. It's, so oh good. Anytime I see a little blooper reel like that at the end of a movie, always makes me think of Smoking the Bandit. Oh my gosh, yeah. Well, you know, geez, I'm trying to dig into to my 13-year-old's memory here because it's been many, many years since I've seen that movie. Oh gosh, when did I last see Smoking the Bandit? Six months ago? Nine months ago? Yeah. That's a regular rotation in this house. Our dog is called Bandit. My kids named our dog Bandit after... Smokey and the Bandit. Uh, not because he steals food off your plates? Oh, no dog in my house steals food off plates. That's, okay. that's never, never been allowed. It's not a thing. Ever. Okay. Well, as, as much as I'd love to talk about your dog more. Yeah, cheers, man. Speaking of, I probably actually have to go let him, let him in from outside. He's probably freezing his, I would say freezing his balls off, but he ain't got none. So he's just like the other men in this house. <laughs> So seeing as we have the good Dr. Bill, Billy Lumsden, on with us, I I want to let our listeners know, even though we recorded a bit over an hour with Dr. Bill, and we mentioned this in the mailbag episode, but I think it's good to mention it here, as we were nearing the end of our allotted time, it was Dr. Bill that had said, "It, it seems as if we're only scratching the surface here, so maybe we should book a second meeting. And and so that's what we've done. We've got a, a second meeting. So this is really, this is part one. How cool is that? A So very, very cool. <laughs> right? A, we have Dr. Bill Lumsden opening season five, and B, this is just part one. So, mm-hmm. so I'm very excited to to have him on and and to learn from him and to share a conversation with him. My question to you, Jason, is before we hand over the mic to to us to our conversation with with Dr. Bill, is there anything that you wanted our listeners to keep in mind, other than that there being a part two, before we move over? No, I I definitely don't want to get between the listeners and Dr. Bill for even another second. Well, there you go. Let's do it, man. Bill, we're, we're excited and happy for you to be with us. We really appreciate you taking out the time to do this. Yeah, it's been too long. It's been way too long. Well, you know, I was trying to think back to the first interview I did with you. It was you, me, and David Blackmore, and we were below the Glenmorangie offices in the Tom Colicchio restaurant. Yep, yep. And and I'll I'll never forget this. I I want to say it was about 10 years ago, maybe eight years ago, eight, 10 years ago, and you had ordered a Riesling, a Trimbach Riesling. Mm-hmm. And you had said, you poured it, you noticed it, you tasted it, and you said, I'll never forget this note. You said, what I love about this Riesling, it has this lovely kerosene note to it. And this interview aside, c- 
Could you? I've never heard kerosene being used as a note with anything. Yep, it, it, it's it's actually uh, a generally a marker of authenticity and quality in in Riesling wines. And I have to say, I don't get it so much in New World Rieslings, but when you've mm. got a great Alsace Riesling from Hugel or um, Roly Gassman or, or whoever, you, it's one of the key markers I look for. And, you know, it should never dominate, but it should be there in the background. And mm. I, I think it's one of the higher alcohols that causes it. I, I always meant to do a bit of research on it, but I, I just love it. And I love the fact that it's so different and so distinctive. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's brilliant. So I, I, I want, I definitely want to get into tasting notes, how your nose works, how your palate works, mm -hmm. but, but for the, um, for our listeners and, and for ourselves, I would love if you wouldn't mind if you could take us back in time a little bit and and tell us your story of of where you started, maybe even a little bit before whiskey, to where you are now, can you can you share a bit of that journey with us? Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about this uh, from the perspective of nosing and tasting your know, organoleptic assessment, um, I, I grew up with uh, an inquisitive mind and an, an inquisitive palate and happily grew up with quite a good palate, um, one that was able to discern between differences. And, you know, I, I've said this to many people that if you don't have that, and, you know, it, different people have different as physical and physiological aspects were not all the same. But if you don't have that, no amount of training can compensate for that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a, a little anecdote mm. that when we recruited Brendan McCarran to my team, um, the key part for me of that whole interview process was the successful candidate had to have a good nose and palate. Mm -hmm. And if they didn't have that, then <laughs> it was game over. So happily uh, for Brendan, he did pass the organoleptic assessment. Now, uh, <laughs> not not nearly as well as he thinks he did, but <laughs> he, 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 he did pass it. And, um, you know, I was very clear about that. And I remember saying to the CEO at that time, who definitely had his favourite candidates for the job to eventually take over from me. And I said, mm. well, in some respects, Paul, I, I don't give a shit about your favourite candidate. <laughs> says, I'm going to make the main decision here, but it has to be someone who is able to distinguish between different tastes. And, mm. you know, I've got such vivid memories. And, you know, the sense of smell is great at stimulating the part of your brain that deals with memory anyway. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I've got very, very early memories of all sorts of aromas and tastes. And I'm very, very regularly taken back in time in an instant by smelling something. And, you know, I don't always immediately recognize what it is. I don't always, usually I do, but I don't always even tie it into the particular memory, but it's such an evocative thing. So I've always been mm -hmm. blessed with a sense, a good sense of smell and taste. 
So you would have thought that would have made me think, okay, maybe I could do something with this in terms of a career. But you know, sure. being a, a typical Scottish bampot, sensible thoughts like that <laughs> did not enter into my tiny little mind. And it wasn't until I had embarked on a career in research and then production in the Scotch whisky industry that I kind of went back to this hmm. and gradually moved myself in this direction. So when I first joined the Scotch whisky industry after doing my PhD, at that stage, I wasn't 100% clear where I would end up. And it's yeah. only really been since I joined the Glenmorangie company that I've really started to capitalize on having this ability and this skill set. Uh, uh, let me pause you really quickly here. So before you got into whiskey, you you understood that that there was something about your palate. You smelled things differently. You tasted things differently. Mm. How how did you know that that was different from from your peers, from your from your family? Well, what, one of the reasons I knew it was different was that I exhibited it sometimes in strange and unwelcome ways. So I got many slaps to the head from my parents. If we were in a restaurant or we were in someone else's house for a meal and I would be picking the plate up and doing that. And, you know, it wasn't something I consciously did to upset people, but I just was deeply intrigued to explore all the range of flavors. Yeah, and yeah. the other thing which I always remember is that, you know, when I'm judging whiskey, I'm always looking not just for um, taste, flavor and aroma and I'm being very specific in differentiating between taste and flavor and by taste I mean sweet sour salty bitter umami flavor is the more complex description of the different flavors in there but I'm not just looking at that I'm very much looking for texture and mouthfeel as well and it's one of my biggest disappointments with many whiskies I taste that they are thin on the palate hmm. And, you know, that can be indicative of a number of things. But to me, good whiskey should not be thin. It should have a texture, whether that texture is thick, whether it's oily, whether it's vibrant and zesty or whatever. So one of the yep. things I've also done, and I, I don't do this so much now because this really did draw um, unusual looks and reactions from people. But any time I got a piece of cloth, and I remember doing this in friends' houses, I would go mm. up to the curtains and sort of rub the curtain material between my teeth and just kind of check the texture <laughs> of it. So it's, I, I don't think I really knew quite what I was doing then, but it was something mm. I was compelled to do. And so I do, I, I do that quite a lot, using my hands to feel things and also my mouth. And I think it has heightened my appreciation or mm. otherwise of the texture of things. That's remarkable. I just imagine having you and your family over to the house for dinner. Where's Bill? He's just in the corner chewing on the curtains. Don't worry about him. It's just a thing he does. It's just a stage. It, 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 was, it, it probably was just a little bit of a stage because, um, yeah, that, it, it's fair enough if someone serves you dinner and you 
you know, I would yeah. expect people to do that, but they may you maybe wouldn't expect your guests to go and start chewing on the curtains or something like that. <laughs> and did you grow up in a family that were whiskey fans, whiskey yeah, lovers? Uh, it yeah. doesn't sound like anyone was in the yeah. industry. I mean, but it was a whiskey house. Yeah, it was a big, a major whiskey house. Whiskey mm. was always mm. the drink of choice, and you know, not just my mum and dad, but grandparents and aunts and uncles. Um, and hmm. you know, it, 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 when I when I look at things now, it's with a little degree of sadness because I think we've kind of almost missed out a generation. And I'm talking hmm. about my generation here because my hmm. son and daughter's generation—they're loving their whiskies. There's been a revival in that but it's almost like the generation i grew up in and there's not that many of my old group of friends from my school days and universities who are whiskey lovers there are yeah. obviously mm -hmm. one or two but yes yeah, certainly i grew up in a, a major a uh, whiskey drinking family so i've got very vivid memories and Again, you know, back in the 1960s and 1970s, the vast majority of people globally, but also in Scotland, were drinking blended scotch because single yeah. malt just was not so widely available. So, you know, it was Shiva's Regal if my dad was particularly flush. If they weren't, it was famous grouse was in the house quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, your family was uh, a tier or two above mine. Ah. Uh, my uncles and my dad were always cheapest chips, rock gut blends, yep. the big plastic yep. bottles yep. that you could get at the supermarket. Yep. And I, I do remember there was one New Year uh, where an uncle showed up with a famous grouse and everyone was, oh, get you, yep. get yep. you. Yep. Oh, someone's shown off this New Year. Yep. And then that was the first bottle emptied. Yep. And then they went off back to all the rock it, it, It's quite sort of um, interesting and, you know, slightly sobering to think that, you know, back in these days, having a famous grouse or a Crawford's Five Star or <laughs> even a Shivers Regal or, or a Johnny Black, mm -hmm. that was absolute luxury and out of the ordinary. And, and nowadays we've got such an array of riches at our fingertips mm -hmm. that things like that are just routine now. Yeah, Which is a bit of a shame because, you know, they are the backbone of the Scotch whiskey industry. And, you know, if I'm running a panel at one of the competitions where we're tasting standard blends, I always say to the people in the panel, I say, look, remember here, you shouldn't be thinking of these whiskies in terms of a very smooth 10 or 12 year old single malt. They're not. You need to judge them within their own category and, mm -hmm. and not yeah. mark them down because of that. Is that easily done? I, I agree with you in, yeah. in saying it. Is it once you do start tasting through it, though, I, I would think that if you say, OK, this is its own category. Yeah. yeah suddenly things maybe appear better than yeah, they might yeah, be? Is, is that a fair yeah, statement? Yeah, I, I would say it, it's not easily done. And, you know, I, I, again, I entered the category drinking aged single malt scotch. And even yeah. I, you know, I have to almost recalibrate my palate. And if, if, I'm, if I'm tasting non-aged blended scotch, it's probably going to take me a couple of flights before I feel my palate's calibrated and I'm doing it justice. Mm -hmm. So it, it is quite mm -hmm. difficult.
Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Where were we? I feel I feel as if we got a bit tangential there. Oh, we're done with PhD and yeah. maybe yeah, yeah, staring Glamorangy PLC square yeah, in the face. Yeah, sorry, I, 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 I did go off on a bit of a tangent, but I thought it was something that would be interesting to explore yeah. in terms oh, of how I develop my taste. But yeah, um, absolutely. I, I worked uh, the the DCL as it was then Diageo and got yeah. as anybody who passes through their system the best training, the best grounding that prepared me for what I was going to be doing. But I I got a little bit frustrated and felt that um, things weren't necessarily moving as fast as I wanted them to and that I had been overlooked for one or two positions in the distillery management pool in Diageo because I moved from my research scientist into becoming a trainee manager and blah, blah, blah. And I went off on various offshoots but I thought an, a number of things happened that I thought, okay, I'm a little bit frustrated. I am certain there is a great career ahead of me in this company, but I'm not a patient person, which is quite interesting <laughs> because I'm making products that take such a long time to reach fruition. Um, that really is, yeah. yeah. So I wouldn't expect that. I, I'm notoriously impatient. So there was a little bit of impatience in there. I had read an article in my British GQ magazine. Um, It was uh, the uh, October edition of 1994 or September. And there was kind of a a little article, and I don't know if it was an advertorial or if it was an actual GQ article, Mm. but it was a new Glenmorangie called Port Wood Finish. And this utterly fascinated me and intrigued me and thought, my goodness, this is much more adventurous. And, you know, when we look back on it now, it's not really that adventurous. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're not in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull territory here, but it, it was quite adventurous. And I thought, I really like the fact that they've actually done something to their whiskey and actually flexed the flavour in a different direction. And then fate took a hand because almost at exactly the same time, the job of distillery manager at Glenmorangie was advertised. And, you know, I spoke wow. with my wife. We weighed things up and I thought, I reckon if I move to this company, I might get involved more quickly in some quite funky, exciting things. Mm. So I applied for the job and I I got the job. You know, I was very clearly the best candidate by some considerable distance. (laughs) No doubt. No doubt. Nobody nobody listening has a doubt in their mind, Bill. At at least I've got the good (laughs) grace to laugh at myself when I say that. They they recognised that I think the distillery had been left to run itself. The previous manager had disappeared um, and they wanted someone who was quite structured and they felt someone had been trained by Di- by Diageo. I mean, little did they know I'm the least structured person in the world. But, you know, I, I, they, they gave me the job. And the, the first challenge I had was just to try and inter- introduce a degree of smooth operation of the distillery and a little bit mm. of structure, a little bit of standards in there. But at the same time, 
there was a mini civil war going on in the board of the company. And the very creative managing director, a lovely gentleman called Neil Maquero, who carried out this experiment, which led to the Portwood finish, he mm -hmm. fell out with the family and the rest of the board, and he had actually departed the company by the time I started. So this whole area, which had proved such a, an a, appeal to me to draw me in there, fell by the wayside. Wow. So, but the, the good thing with that was that basically I had carte blanche, apart from a financial budget perspective, to basically do what I wanted with this and try and resurrect it and grow it and build it. And that's exactly what I did. And, you know, the, the first um, 10 years of my tenure at Glenmorangie were a bit of a roller coaster. And, you know, I moved from being distillery manager after only four years which I was not anticipating. But again, mm -hmm. because of ongoing ructions in the board, a number of people left the business and there was an opening for someone to become the master distiller. Mm -hmm. So I, I moved into that, but I was battling against a, a rather um, unadventurous board, um, a board of directors who were only interested in the bottom line but I'm nothing if not dogged and determined. And, you know, just running the distillery to make things as cheap as possible was of no interest to me whatsoever. So sure. I didn't have an easy time of it for that first six years in this role, but I was absolutely hmm. determined to outlive um, what I call the, 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 the dark ages. And that's exactly what happened. So I, I managed to establish a new wood management policy. I, I was just going to ask this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry. Yeah, continue. I, yeah. I started to carry out all sorts of experiments, most of which I didn't tell anyone out with my own department about, and this led to the the the, the generation of signet and all sorts of things like that. Uh, and eventually, when we were bought in two thousand and five right at the beginning of two, by LVMH. That was it. That was the final piece of the jigsaw puzzle for me. And I moved from being regarded as a necessary evil in the company to actually being regarded as someone the company wanted and wanted to encourage and build on the creativity. So the, 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 the ownership of LVMH has unquestionably been the best years of my career. Yeah, that's wonderful. That that that's remarkable to hear, Bill. Where you know clearly at every point you're the best man for the job, but to hear timing and the way timing yeah. has just fit yeah. in. The fact you see a piece in a GQ magazine that fell around the same time as a job opening, where you then got in and it wasn't the world you thought you were getting into. You then do your own experimentation quietly behind the scenes that puts you in a perfect line for 2005 when LVMH buys the I mean, company. I, mean, I, I, I know there's a... I, I fought very hard to make it the world I wanted to go into, but there's mm -hmm. no question yeah. there was a lot of serendipity in there. And, mm -hmm. and the other thing that I forgot to mention when I was reading the GQ, when I was getting frustrated with my, my former company, um, Glenmorangie was the first 
whiskey I drank in, in earnest. It was what drew me into the category. So it was my first love from a whiskey perspective. Mm. So it all fitted quite nicely. Uh, that's that's really remarkable. There, there is that adage of you know making your own luck in this world, and it, you, you just echoed that a moment ago where you you work diligently behind the scenes to get lucky. <laughs> that's that's kind of how it works out. And, and you know, I, I guess the other thing I would throw in here, and there will be certain former colleagues of mine who won't like hearing this, but not that I care about that. But you know, if I was to give advice to young distillers starting out in the industry, bear in mind there will always be people trying to derail you, trying to dumb down what you're doing, trying to cut costs, trying to simplify things, but, you know, push back against that. Don't let them win. And, Mm, you know, as David knows, I'm very, very battle-scarred. And, you know, there's a lot of people in the company who think I'm extremely hard-nosed. And that's because I am, Mm. because I've had to be (laughs) to get to where I wanted to. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Before we go any further, I must say, uh, not just 10, but 20 points to Gryffindor for using both roller coaster and serendipity in yeah. your yeah. Uh, in, in your answers yeah. there. Yeah. Just yeah. waiting I, I, for you to Yeah, go ahead. No, it's just the, the the I think I've told you this before, Josh, the story of roller coaster where the name came from. Hmm. Maybe that's too much detail. Sorry, yeah. I I'm no, 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 I'd love to hear yeah, this. Please is, go I, on, Bill. Let's yeah, it, get on it, tangents. It was, I like this. I mean it it, it was um when we were trying to do a release for the 10th anniversary of the Ardbeg Committee, and I worked very closely with the, the brand manager at that time, Hamish Torrey, who was a very creative gentleman. You, you, you guys probably have met him because he still does a bit of PR work for us. Um, mm-hmm. But he said, oh, what we do, Bill, he said, why, why don't we um, do a, a 10-year-old cask strength? And I said, yeah, Great, Hamish, why don't we butter a slice of bread? It was that interesting to me. <laughs> and he, he said, well, wh- wh- why don't we take 10 casks and vat them all together? And I said, well, yeah, you know, we could do that as well. But, you know, it doesn't strike me as being really interesting. And he said, well, okay, what would you suggest? So I said, well, why don't we um, celebrate the 10th anniversary of the committee by putting together a whiskey that's made with differing portions of mm. whiskey from our first 10 years of ownership of the Ardbeg distillery. And it just so happened that the youngest of mm. the whiskies from our first 10 years of ownership, 2007, it, this was 2010. So the youngest yeah. of these first 10 years was just old enough to legally be called Scotch whiskey. And I drew, mm-hmm. I, I was very proud of myself for this very sadly, but I drew a triangle and uh, at the point, the bot, and then I split the triangle into 10 portions. And at the uh-huh. bottom point, I'll, I'll maybe even, as I speak, try and draw this for you. Oh, lovely. But at the bottom point of the triangle, the thinnest part of it, that was going to be the the youngest whiskey. So one, two, three, four, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. 
<laughs> this is great. Right. So I don't know if, if you can see that there. Oh, there um, we go. Yep. Yeah. Uh-huh. So yeah. the point of the triangle, the smallest portion in terms of volume was a three-year-old, then a slightly mm-hmm. bigger volume of four, a slightly bigger volume of five, and then right up to the largest quantity of whiskey in the blend was the 10-year-old. And mm-hmm. Hamish loved this concept and loved the way that I'd woven this together and drawn a little diagram. So I gave that instruction to a member of my team to 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 get the whiskey samples. And I said, I want it all to be ex-bourbon because I want it to be a classic Ardbeg. And put together that recipe, mimic that recipe. Mm-hmm. But the, the person in question actually, um, you know, I, I, I can name names here. It was Rachel Barry, who okay. I don't especially see eye to eye with about a number of things. But not only did she put together that recipe for me, exactly mimicked my triangle with the sliding scale of ages, she put together another two samples with different ratios of that and then presented them to myself and Hamish blind. And we both uh-huh. immediately chose our favourite. And once I'd chosen my favourite, I thought, right, that's the recipe we're going to go with, Rachel. Thank you. I drew the graph again. And this time it came out like that. Ah, uh, okay. so which is which is what we see on the back of the yeah. the bottle, so if I remember that, correctly. That of yeah. course is a roller coaster. So <laughs> that, that, that's where it came from, and you know what I learned um, uh, from from that was that I think it's always yeah. nice to have. That's it. That's the one. Yep. 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 I think it's all, and that that <laughs> very accurately mimics the recipe that went in there. Um, I thank you, George, for just happening to ha- happen to have one handy. <laughs> what I learned from that was that particularly for a brand like Ardbeg, if you can tell your consumers a little anecdote like that, but one which is absolutely pertinent to the product, then you're on to a yeah. winner. Yeah, that's that's really striking. I I I don't think I'd heard that story before, and I I was at various roller coaster launches, and I don't recall. Yeah. So I, maybe I heard it in the mists of time, yeah, and I've the, the, I've since forgotten it. And the thing I would say about that story, uh, Jason, is it's a hundred percent true. Many of my stories aren't, but that one is. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, true wish um i i i could ask you questions about ardbeg all day long but i know for joshua and with joshua and it's a a little bit that you teased earlier you changed the wood management Mm -hmm. policy procedures at glenmorangie one of the things we absolutely love talking uh to industry folk about are changes in wood policy because it's really striking that the 80s a difficult time for the scotch industry the 90s when things started to look a little bit better there's almost this window between 1995 and 2005 where you start to hear different places implementing better wood Mm. policy can you give us the the fly on the wall of that what was that like internally what was the decision like and how did you actually do it okay so um again Glenmorangie was historically quite a forward-thinking company and it had always been 
maybe a little bit more innovative than some of the other companies in the industry. So they, they had already picked up on the fact that throughout the 80s and into the early 90s, the quality of the ex-bourbon barrels coming out of the United States seemed to be going downhill a little bit hmm. due to a number of factors, You know, not least the growth in the American whiskey industry and the massive increase on demand for, for wood. So it seemed that it, when they compared the samples to some of the historical samples, the taste profile and in particular the sweetness and body of the whiskey just wasn't quite as good. So the company had worked with the late, great Dr. Jim Swan, who at sure. that time mm -hmm. was at Pentland's Scotch Whiskey Research, Scotch Whiskey Research Institute, as we call it now, and had started to develop a, a program to try and fight back against that and to try and make barrels in the United States the way they used to be made, you know, mm. using much more slow growth oak, using a degree of air seasoning and, mm. and sort of maturing of the wood, changing the, the, the toasting and charring profile to bring a, a better uh, range of flavours there. But again, by the time I joined the company, the, see, the personnel had changed there was little appetite within the company to do that because it was a lot more expensive. So again, mm -hmm. I fought tooth and nail, not only to reinstate that program, but actually to build on it and improve on it. So I rationalized the supply base because when I joined, they were buying casks from almost anywhere you could think of. And sure. there was there was a degree of cost in there, and I changed it to using suppliers that I was comfortable with using and that I knew would deliver consistent quality to me. And I changed the policy, for example, for Glenmorangie Original to say we weren't going to use refill casks. It would only be first mm. fill and a proportion of second fill casks and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I wrote that out as a new policy. Um, which we have stuck to to this day. Uh, and, you know, one, one of the, the nicest things in that policy was that a lot of people had noticed that um, in, and I'm just trying, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at my maths and dates here, but roughly 19 to 20 years after I started with the company, so round about 2015, 2016, the quality of Glenmorangie 18-year-old seemed to dramatically increase. And that's because mm. you were seeing the first impact of my change in policy coming through for that whiskey. You also saw it in the original and the recipe changed when we relaunched the brand in 2007. So you're seeing mm -hmm. the first use of my designer casks in, mm -hmm. in there. But, you know, I was very conscious. I didn't want to change the 10-year-old, the original, too much. And, and, you know, of course, many other companies in the Scotch whiskey industry have followed suit or were also working on their own policy. But, you know, I, I remember yeah. being joined by recruiting a new distillery manager, 
back in the day and I asked him about his current company, which shall remain nameless, their wood policy. And he famously said to me, he said, Bill, as long as it was once part of a tree, it would do. So that's how that came about. And, you know, I'm happy to say that, again, since the takeover by LVMH, you know, they they have given me so Mm. much more money to invest in this policy, but also in, in, in experimentation and trying different things. When, Mm -hmm. when you look to make that, uh, wood policy change with Glenn Morangy. And and if memory serves, I think you, you did something similar with, with Ard Begg yeah. a little later on. Do you have to also take into consideration potential changes to fermentation or, or distillation? Yes and no, Josh. So um, if I can start with fermentation, uh, first of all, um, it's obviously a critically important part of the process but it is only one part of it to, 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 to give flavour and, you know, to dramatically change things in fermentation without seriously impacting on your spirit yield. You have to do some quite drastic things. So it's only in the last decade or so I've started to focus a bit more on fermentation. And I guess what I'm trying to say here is that as an industry, we had pretty much got on top of fermentation to maximise this balance between alcohol production and flavour. And most of the industry was doing the same thing. That That's mm-hmm. a little bit sad in a way because it meant that it became a kind of neglected part of the process. So you're going to be seeing some of the changes I've been making there coming through over the next 10 years or so. In terms of distillation... I almost immediately changed the distillation cut points at the distilleries. When I when I became distillery manager at Glenmorangie, I felt that the spirit uh, cut was far too wide. I felt that we, we were picking up too much of the fainty character in the new make spirit. Yeah. So I made the changes and I only spoke to one person in the company. I, 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 I took a risk. And I bypassed my boss at that time. I bypassed the rest of the board because I knew they, they, they wouldn't be on board with my changes because I made it less efficient to run. But I went straight to David McDonald himself, who was the owner of the company, and he immediately approved my changes. And, you know, hmm. guess what? I wasn't making black and white changes here but I actually shortened the four shots. So I was capturing more of these very pungent fruity acetate esters in the spirit cut. And I dramatically shortened the spirit cut. So I was cutting to faints much more quickly than was historically the case. And I just ended up making a much sweeter and fruitier spirit, a spirit which I felt was more appropriate for the type of whiskey we were trying to make. So, um, you know, the the wood management policy was changed, not necessarily in conjunction with the changes to the spirit policy, but I felt that they, they, they absolutely needed to be made sooner rather than later, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that makes good sense. Earlier on, we, we talked about texture and texture being such an integral part of... Mm-hmm 
of an enjoyable whiskey drinking experience. Um, you're working with two very different makes, Ardbeg and Glenmorangie. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that that has always surprised me with Glenmorangie is the flavors are not just light and fruity and approachable, but despite going way up the mm-hmm. you know way up the neck of that still, you're still retaining some oil mm-hmm. on the back end there. And and I'm curious are are you finding those oils coming in through the spirit? Uh, mostly, is is the wood also imparting some of those oils? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there's there's a bit of both in there, Josh. And I, I, I had a funny feeling I, I knew where you were going to be going with this question. So obviously, if, if you're using tired old wood then you're getting less body from wood sugars, you're getting less Mm -hmm. of the classic wood extractives in there, and you'll get a little bit more dryness. So you'll lose a bit of body from that, and you get these natural compounds that gives you the impression of oiliness. But Mm -hmm. it's also particularly in the, the spirit itself. And, you know, one of the critical things after maturation is the chill filtration regime. And, you know, that I'm 99% certain that on the whiskies that I am marking down because they're thin on the palate, it's because they've been brutally chill filtered. And, you know, mm. for even for Glenmorangie Original, while it is chill filtered, I don't take the temperature down nearly as low. I mean, a lot of companies are taking it down to almost zero, which is taking more of the fatty acid esters out of solution. Mm. And they're using very, very tight uh, micropore filters. So they're stripping everything, all the goodness out of the whiskey. And, you know, if you take mm-hmm. a bottle of Glenmorangie original and bung it in your freezer for half an hour or so, it almost is going gloopy in there. Mm. And that's a lot of the oils coming out of the solution. And, you know, there's one or two very, very well-known brands, which I'm absolutely dismayed at what they've done to them. And, you know, it doesn't just come across as being thin. It can come across as being harsh and metallic on the taste And I'm not certain where that metallic influence is coming from, but it's it's a a reflection of a harsh chill filtration regime. Hmm. So so follow-up question on that one then. So if you're not taking the temperature quite as low, what's the chill filtering for? What's Glenmorangie looking to achieve with Uh, that little... uh, call it little yeah. bit of chill I, I, filtering. I, I think the, the inference in your question there, Jason, is why don't we just go the whole hog and not chill filter at all? And, you know, <laughs> that, that I, is I, the inference. I, I'm, you are on, correct. I'm on a pathway towards that. But because okay. Glenmorangie has such wide global distribution and because we are constantly breaking into new markets, there is a risk that if your whiskey is appearing cloudy or opaque, it's it will be rejected and it will be sent back mm-hmm. as a complaint. And, you know, we've had plenty of that from some of the markets that we've not been historically present in. And I'm talking about places mm-hmm. even like China, although China has moved on leaps and bounds in the last decade in its understanding. 
So that's the main reason we do it. But, you know, I, I, I would like us to get to a stage where we just don't need to do it at all. Would you would you entertain the, the starting strength of 46% to avoid it? Or do you then find when you take people out of their 40 and 43% yeah. comfort zones yeah. that 46 is just a different difficult yeah. Yeah. sell? The, 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 there's a double whammy in there. Yeah. Uh, and while... Most of us round this metaphorical table today will drink <laughs> cast-strength whiskey and barely bat an eyelid at it. A lot of new drinkers, yep. it will just be far too strong for them. And even going up from 40 to 43 to 46, you know, it can be a little bit too much. And the other side of the mm -hmm. coin is that even someone as devil may care and as extravagant as myself, I do still have to hit certain targets from a budget perspective. Yeah. And, you know, mm -hmm. if you're suddenly ending up with um, 40 divided by 46 times the volume of whiskey, you have to take a hit somewhere. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it, 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 it's yeah. these yeah. two factors coming into play. Well, and then your bottle price goes up and then you're attracting a different yeah. portion of the market. Yeah, yeah. yeah I understand yeah. it becomes swings yeah. and roundabouts at one point. I, I, I know I know. Jason has some, some pressing Ardbeg questions and maybe this next yeah. question will, will act as a good segue to yeah. that. Being the person in charge of designing whiskeys for mm -hmm. both Glenmorangie and Ardbeg, when I think of the two brands, Glenmorangie, much larger production, appeals to a larger base of people. Ardbeg, much less production, a bit of a cultish following and so forth. And I'm just curious, do you, what's it like wearing those different hats? Do you, yeah. do you approach these whiskeys in, in very different ways, knowing who the audience is or will yeah. be? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not even so much just that, Josh, thinking about the different audience, but it's also just there's such different distilleries, such different whiskies to work with. So to a large extent, you know, I've got a Glenmorangie head, which I take off and replace with an Ardbeg head. And, mm. and you know, a lot of the things, a lot of the very subtle things I've done at Glenmorangie, which are picked up in differences in taste, just wouldn't work at all at Ardbeg. And, you know, yeah. I've by and large resisted the temptation to make an Ardbeg-style whiskey at Glenmorangie. I have made some medium-peated spirit, which I've dribbled into one or two expressions, like the Dornoch limited-release mm -hmm like the current 16-year-old um, Elementa and travel retail and things like that. But, you know, I, I generally do approach them in different ways. And I'm almost, always mindful of the fact that while I am trying to push the boundaries, I want to stay true to the, the, the taste profile and the ethos of the classic Glenmorangie and the classic Ardbeg to a certain extent. So yes, I do approach them in quite different ways. You just said classic Ardbeg and it brings me to my first question for you. I got into whiskey to, you know, mid nineties, mid to the, to the end of the nineties. And in getting into it, exploring things like 
Lafroig and mm-hmm. Kalila and Bomore, in speaking to the old boys, they would invariably say there was nothing like old Ardbeg. Mm-hmm. You know, old Ardbeg. It was green and it was this and it was that and you you knew you had a dram in your hands. And now that you know, I'm in this industry and I consider myself a bit of an old boy in it. And I'm saying, oh, you should have tasted some of the things that were coming out in the late 90s. Boy, you wouldn't believe what they were doing. How much, given that you were in amongst the stocks yeah. and going through the warehouse, what was old Ardbeg like taking it from the stocks? Because I've, I've got a sneaking suspicion that some of these old boys were tasting it in their memories. Yep. And they maybe right. weren't talking about actual right. liquid. So what did you first yep. discover when you right. got access okay. to the Ardbeg so, warehouses? Um, I think there, there, there's two factors at play here, Jason. It's a very good question. And one of these is that back in the day, there was much less pressure on the distilleries in terms of production. I mean, most recognised malt whisky distilleries now are on at least 80% production, most of them on 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you do not have the luxury of being able to do everything much more slowly. And there's no question, if you've got a 12-hour mash cycle and an old-fashioned mash tun with the rate, that, that you know, that rather than a louter tun, you've got crystal mm-hmm. clear warts from that, which I think gives you a slight increase in, in, in quality. But, you know, if we were to go back to doing things like that, back to seven-day germination on the malting floor, mm-hmm. we would barely mm-hmm. be able to make 30% of our overall production needs now. So the ever-increase in demand for our products has led to the, the whole of the industry having to slightly speed up the process. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. that back in the day, whether you're drinking an old Ardbeg or an old Beaumore or an old Glenlivet or an old Glenmorangie, you would get these little nuggets where the taste was probably slightly better than it is today for these reasons. But, and this is the very big but here, I've tasted way more bad old art bags than I have good old art bags. <laughs> so there is mm-hmm. a, a, a little bit of looking back at things through rose-tinted spectacles and, you know, looking yeah. back with, with the memory. And, and, you know, some of the stock I've tasted from older days, irrespective of the distillery, was truly terrible. But to a certain extent, Mm. it didn't matter because guess what? It was just chucked into a blend and got lost in there. So um, what we we produce today, uh, while it may not quite scale the, the absolute stratospheric heights of the very best whiskies ever made, in general mm-hmm. terms, in average terms, it's much better quality and it's much more mm-hmm. consistent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure, sure. No, and, and and I think I think that makes yeah. perfect sense. Um, one of the things that we we keep hearing, and and now that yeast is is becoming such a big conversation, um, certainly whiskey geeks and the good geeks that are listening yeah. to a podcast like this are all about yeah. yeast. And again, 
it's hard to have the conversation about yeast without looking at the the old days where we talk about the move from brewer's mm-hmm. yeast to distiller's yeast. And you mentioned it earlier, this transition in yield and flavor and you're, you're paying attention to a, a Christ, an accounting yeah. book, right? Would you like to see some brewer's yeast come back? Do you think brewer's yeast could come back? Is there a way to, to get okay, back to um, that? I- Two questions there. Firstly, yes, I would love to see Brewer's Yeast come back because I believe that the new make spirit at a typical Scotch malt whiskey distillery lost something when we were unable to use the Brewer's Yeast again. And I don't Hmm. know if it's... I'm a yeast physiologist by training, but it's very difficult to find this out Hmm. exactly. I don't know if it's because the brewing yeast produced slightly different flavour congeners. I suspect it's more to do with the fact that the brewer's yeast was less able to stand up to the demands of a Scotch malt whiskey fermentation. So it died and the cells Mm. autolyzed more readily. And when they burst open, they were giving forth different flavours. I suspect there's a little bit of both in there. Hmm, And by the time you mature the spirit in good quality active casks for 10 or 12 years, the little difference is almost negligible. But um, I mean, it's a little bit like imagining a big chunk of salami and you (laughs) cut a little slice off one evening, a very thin slice, and you don't notice much difference. And then the next evening, you cut another very thin slice off and you don't notice much difference. But then 365 days later, when you've done that every day, (laughs) there's not an awful lot of it left. So I think that's what you have to be very cognizant of as a whiskey distiller, that lots of these different changes on their own are not really going to give you a noticeable difference but when you add them sure. all up together. So I'm my current hobby horse at the moment in the company is to try and fight back against the danger of product drift. And, mm-hmm. and you know, someone in operations, I'll give you a little sort of metaphorical example, will say to me, oh, Bill, if we were able to install a downstream refrigerator here, it would allow us to rattle through the stills more quickly and would become much more efficient. What do you think? And my first thought is, get the fuck out of here. I'm not interested. (laughs) But, you know, sometimes you have to weigh it up and give very good reasons why you don't want to do it. And even if I run the Mm -hmm. distillery for a month, as it is at the moment, and then run it for a month with whatever newfangled technology is there, and then look at the spirit, the chances are I'm not going to pick up much in the way of difference. But as I say, it's all these different slices gradually accumulate and come together. So, um, well, and I think, go yeah, on. So, so that's the, the, the answer to your first question is I have this feeling and, you know, backed up on nosing and tasting that if we were able to reintroduce good quality brewer's yeast, it might make a difference. But it's also, you know, you're talking about being impatient, but you're also looking at 
all of these, you're not able to run a control, right? You can set up a control that runs 10 years while you're experimenting That's 10 years. That's the challenge, years. yeah. And as a scientist, yeah. you always want to do that. So um, I live in hope that I would be able at some stage to reintroduce brewer's yeast, but it, it will be difficult to do it in a consistent, ongoing fashion. And, you know, the other thing I would throw in here that is that the, the, the quality of the brewer's yeast was very, very variable. And, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. it was almost oozing out the bags when it came to the distillery. And, you know, that's not a good sign. You don't want that. So, but, you know, um, I, I will certainly say this, Jason, it's it's fairly uppermost in my mind as one of the things I want to do before I retire. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's good yeah. to hear. Wow. That's yeah. very good. I, I, I'm in a minority in my company just now. But again, I, I couldn't care yeah. less about that. You know? <laughs> Sounds like yeah. it hasn't stopped yeah. you before. Yeah. So um, here with, with, with the interest of casting an eye to the future here, and, and we'll, we'll take you up for another maybe five yeah. minutes here if, if you're okay with that, Bill. But there's... There's so much we could talk about, and I really appreciate having you for this amount of time. And as you say, G guys, it's long been on the cards. Let, let, let's tee up yes. part two of this because, you know, I'm sensing here there's oh, a lot more you want gosh. to ask me. So let's do oh, that. A lot more. We'll, Always. we'll leave that to you guys to liaise with. The, is, that, is, that your, is that a dog or a pussycat there? Yeah, it's a pussycat. This is oh, Ichabod. What? Ichabod. Wow. He's, yeah. he is five, he's just five months old. Right. And he's, wow, and he's, gosh, it's a fair yeah. size for five months old. Yeah, he's um, not, normally, I would be able to tip my thing here and show you Morangy the cat. You can maybe see his little bed there. Oh, I see the basket. Yeah, but he's, he's, yeah. not, he's not about today. So anyway, sorry, uh, five minutes. Next question, yeah, no, guys. No. <laughs> yeah, just, just a few more minutes here and then we'll, we'll get the, the portion uh, closed out here. But I... Super excited to have you back for a second because time. there are that so be many questions that we have. Yeah, but, absolutely yeah. brilliant. Well, let, let's do that and um, please take note, David. We'll do part two. Right. Awesome, thank you, Bill. Thank I you. appreciate that. Right. Um, so as you as you look forward, you're you're clearly a man who's got at least one special release for each distillery mm -hmm. on your mind annually, mm -hmm. and I can imagine with, with Ardbeg, it's what do you do next? What's the next wrinkle? And so mm -hmm. we're not asking for the grand reveal, but we're asking what are you excited about? As you cast your eye forward over the next year, what's got your attention with all of the different hats that you wear? So what's exciting me at the moment? Okay, um, let, let me just grab something here. Um... <laughs> well, that's worrying. Sorry, I'm just going to grab something and show you something. All right. Cheers. This is exciting. Yeah. The last time he said this, they had to bring in HR, but this time <laughs> it'll be different. It, it, He's it was, learned his lesson. It was actually right down at my feet all the time. Now, I, I'm a very <laughs> old-fashioned type of guy in that um, I still like the quill and ink as opposed to new fancy, fancy technology. So um, I'm not going to show you this in great detail, but this is my okay. template. Can you see that? I can. I can for, see it. Uh -huh. For many, many different types of um, projects I'm working on just now. And 
rather than <laughs> it just being in the, the muddy ether of my mind, I, I'm trying to put a little bit of structure into that and develop different product pipelines. So to, to, to actually, I'm, I'm not being a politician here and evading <laughs> the question, guys. Um, the, I was yeah, curious. The, the one that's exciting me the most is um, a new series of Glenmorangie whiskies, which we haven't mm. even decided the name for them yet. But we decided after the 10th release of the private edition series, Mm-hmm. Glenmorangie Alta with the wild yeast. Mm-hmm. We decided we would, um, you know, give 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 the private edition series a bit of a holiday, and you know, partly because mm. we really are trying to um, reach out to a, a, a different audience. We obviously want to keep all of our Glenmorangie lovers and whiskey lovers. But we want to try and draw new people into the category, which you obviously have to do if you want to grow your brand. So the private mm-hmm. edition series was very, very appealing to guys like us, you know, yeah. hardcore whiskey geeks. And they were all based mm-hmm. on experimentation at the distillery. Mm-hmm. So we're developing a new series, which is not only going to be building on that in terms of novel whiskey techniques, but we're also going to be looking at how we position it and offer it up to people. And if you're familiar with the release, A Tale of Cake, guys, did did you mm-hmm. get that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. I mean, yep. Yep. A, Absolutely. A Tale of Cake was, this was a product I'd already made. And while the use of Royal Tokai cast from Hungary greatly excited me not Mm. least because the first time i did it i completely screwed up the experiment so i was determined (laughs) to do it properly but my friends in the marketing department weren't necessarily hugely motivated by this which you know slightly annoyed me a bit at the time but we persisted and i worked Uh with the brand team uh, particularly a lady called Louise Dennett. And I thought she did a wonderful job in teasing more information out from me of a slightly more personal and emotive nature, you know, harking mm-hmm. back to my memory of cakes that my grandmother and my daughter had made for me. And she took this information and built it up into a proposition, which was a, a bit of fun. And I know certain people in the company were very, very, very uncomfortable about that. And there's one of us round this table today with ginger hair. (laughs) But I I just loved the idea. It was a bit of fun. And, you know, we developed a little film where I got splatted in the face with a cake. So what we were doing is... It's fantastic. The whiskey whiskey making is as careful and as serious as it ever is. But the way in which we Mm. present it was a bit different. So that's what I'm working on just now. And I've got at least three products very well developed. Um, And the first one of these is something that not only we've never done before, but I don't think it's been done in the Scotch whiskey industry before. So there there will be the ongoing innovation and new flavors, but we'll be presenting it in a slightly different way. And I've now set... (laughs) 
the marketing department a challenge to say that if you're not making David Blackmore and Billy Lumsden uncomfortable, then you're doing something wrong. <laughs> so so the, the, there's a lot more interesting things to come. And, you know, it, it's, it's what really motivates me the most uh, in my work is trying to do these new things. And we, we, we had a fabulous Ardbeg product we were going to release uh, last year, but we decided to withdraw the product because the the name and the way we described it would have potentially been viewed as challenging while we were in a COVID shutdown environment. And I ah. absolutely can't. David's wow, David's al- I'm trying he's to... already kicking me under the table here. I can't say any more about that. <laughs> the, the, the product itself has been bottled and it's wild and wacky and we're going to rename it and relaunch it probably next year okay david see it in the private (laughs) chat thing zip it bill i will do what do you think dr bill had for dinner when he he ran from that interview to get to the family dining table I figure potatoes were involved. Yeah, it's tough. Like, I just... Dr. Bill, I just picture him only having the fanciest food at all times. Well, that's interesting that you say that. I I always think of him as a a grounded gentleman. I I certainly love the idea of whatever was on his dinner plate, Mm. it ending up under his nose. Uh, that that story he told about sniffing plates of food and yes, sniffing curtains. So I w- I want to talk about the that in just one second, but me suggesting Bill eats fancy food all the time <laughs> is not me suggesting that he's not a grounded guy. I think that he really is, but he's oh, yeah. also someone that. That, that really enjoys the finer things in life. And my guess is he knows his way around escargot and he knows his way around uh, dinner crepes and such. I think he, he eats a lot of French food. That's, that's my guess. But listen. Well, yeah. he is employed by LVMH. Right. So I would certainly keep him in with the big bossies. <laughs> but as he, as he was talking about that story where he would lift the plate of food and smell that plate of food it reminded me of our story when we were invited to a restaurant to review their food and we're not restaurant reviewers but what did we both do and we didn't even consult one another no no didn't right we just lifted the plates to our noses and smelled every little bit and bob on the plate and the chef said i've never seen anyone do that before and I was too embarrassed to say, that's because we don't do this, but was really reassured eight years later when talking to Bill Lumsden, and he told us what he does with his plates of food. So a moment ago when you said, we never do this, you and I do this all the time. What did you mean in that moment? We were never asked to review someone's food. Oh, on the restaurant side. Yeah, on the yeah, restaurant, on the restaurant side. side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. The restaurant side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you and I pick up 
plates of food and food items all the time. All the time. All the time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, you know, I when we were at that restaurant, oh yeah, I was sitting there half the time thinking <laughs> he's gonna find us out. He's going to know we're nothing but amateurs. And then when we lifted the plates to our nose, because that's what we do. And he says, I've never seen that before. I thought, this is the moment where he sends us packing. <laughs> this, is, this is when he finds the rat under these chef's hats that we're wearing. This is going to be the giveaway. And then, lo and behold, Disney made a movie out of that. I was surprised when I saw that. I really was. I was too. And Pat Oswald didn't even tell me he was going to be playing the voice of Remy, but you know, there you go. <laughs> but but here's the thing. You and I on this very podcast have told our listeners keep your nose open at all times, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whoever you're with, keep your nose open at all times. And to hear Dr. Bill, you know, talk about that even as a young person. Mm. Keeping his nose open at all times, it, you know, along with many, many other things, opened a door to the future that he moved into. Yeah. Which is wonderful. Yep. Yep. Really wonderful. 100%. I'm about to pour another whiskey. Did you pour your second one yet? Mm -mm. Can I tell you my second one before you tell me your second one? Please. And we've gone in two very different directions. I know we did. I assumed we would, and I'm glad we did. So the the next whiskey I'm pouring is my favorite, favorite of all time, independently bottled Glenmorangie. And now, Mm -hmm. I mean, truth be told, the label doesn't say Glenmorangie, but, uh, you know, people talk. Oh. People talk. Are you speaking out of school now? Maybe. Well, it's from okay. the Creative Whiskey Company that's no longer around. So I feel as if I can, I, I can say things. No? Okay. Do you, I have no idea. No? You know me. I always err on the side of caution. You're a little bit more fly-by-night. I like to test the waters. I like to dip a toe just in case. Hope the piranha don't bite me. Nibble, nibble. So what I'm about to pour is a 20-year-old single cask bottled by... Creative Whiskey Company, under the exclusive malts label. And it just says, distilled at a, quote, Highland Distillery. It's from a mm-hmm. single first fill Oloroso Sherry Butt, one of 508 bottles, bottled at 54.6% alcohol. And normally, Jason, I like my Glenmorangies with maybe just a bit of sherry. I, I really... Just like with most whiskeys, I really prefer the ex-bourbon cask maturation. So, I, Agreed. Right? So you want to experience that distillery character. But the, the sherry cask in this case does not hide the distillery character. It just plays really nicely in tandem with that distillery character. I hear you. What do you have? <laughs> <laughs> I poured a 20-year-old. I, I was just sitting here very quietly watching you talking about this bottling and then moving on to pour this bottling and then seeing the light bulb go off over your head as you thought, oh, I needed to hand this over to Jason so that I could continue. 
And I just sat very quietly and watched the whole process. It was quite delightful. Was the uh, well, Jeopardy theme song going off in your head until I <laughs> handed it over to you? <laughs> Uh, it was more a, a, a rock drummer beating on the sticks, sending out the beat with the sticks. Right. Anyway. And now here's Moby so, Dick for the next 20 minutes. Go on. <laughs> oh, I love that. It's so good. The song remains the same. Oh, it's so good. I've got my kids watching that now. The band walks off stage. So good. Bottom is just banging away. It's so good. I have gone in a different direction from you Mm -hmm. and I have because I'm very aware of my own personal moments (laughs) and so I know that in saying I found an opened bottle of Supernova 2009 at the back of my Ardbeg shelf I know that that is just dripping with (laughs) and so as my second pour and I didn't have to search for this because I keep it at the very front of the art bag shelf. Iron brew. This is this is something <laughs> I I reach for multiple times a week. Mm-hmm. And as much as on this podcast I've been talking about uh, Great King Street Glasgow blend mm. being insanely quaffable and something that I just drink by the by the bucket. Hashtag please drink responsibly. This is another one that I could pour myself a grand measure and watch TV or watch a movie or read a book or catch up on the the latest happenings in the Atlantic. Mm. By which I mean the the periodical, not the body of water. This is something very, very special. Ardbeg Wee Beastie. This five-year-old, and I'm so happy that they emblazon the label with the, the five. number five. Yep, so good. I love that. You know, you, you and I know this. You and I know this about me. Maybe I should say, you know this about me. The listeners know this about me. I love young Isla whiskey. Yes. If I could drink Isla Newmake, I would quite happily. Travis Williams, bless him. Jared Card, bless him. We are very much in the Colhoman Anticipation fan club. Indeed. I will say auction's the only place you can find that, and it has now gone higher than I am willing to pay for it. I might be more likely to just call up Anthony and James and say, please, could I get some new make spirit for my tastings? Please, oh, please, oh, please. Our <laughs> um, big wee beastie does the things I want a young Isla whiskey to do, and... At forty-seven point four percent, ready ABV. Yep. You can pour away. You can pour away. You can pour away. And so I've poured it for my second dram. It's readily available. I I buy this by the twelve pack, and I share it with local friends. Mm. We we divvy up the the receipts, mm. but we do. We we buy this by the twelve pack. We have no qualms mm-hmm. about opening a bottle. Really destroying a bottle hashtag please drink responsibly and just thoroughly enjoying every pour from it and so you know nice healthy measure oh, yeah. on a weekday afternoon for our recording yep yeah and now my wife has brought me the the cup of tea that i've been anticipating right. thank you hi tomorrow cheers my lady joshua says hi hello. tomorrow says hello All right thank you received oh so- that's lovely to have a wee warm cup of tea next to this as well 
Now I feel like I'm sitting in a, a distillery office in Scotland. I've got whiskey in one glass and I've got a cup of tea with milk and two sugar in the other. Uh, I need one of my kids to make me tea. Uh, listen, I, I wanted to... Well, a couple things. First, Firstly... <clears throat> You, Are you suggesting we've still got a podcast recording here? I, I figure we were just hanging out with the listeners here. I thought that's what we are doing, but I'm just trying to keep the conversation going. So you were kind enough to give me a portion of, of the last case of Wee Beasties. Oh, did purchase. I? Yes, oh, you good. Did. Yes, you did. Oh, good. Um, good, good, good. And, and so... What did we get it for? 40 bucks a bottle? 45 like bucks that. a bottle? 40, 42, 43, whatever it was. It, like a great Something price. Something silly, great, right? Yeah, silly yeah, price. Yeah, great price. Almost too yep. good. And so I love it. And you know, like you, I love Ardbeg. However, for the most part, the Ardbegs that I tend to go for are the softer style, similar to, you know, say the, the older bottlings of Arinambesht or Perpetuum. I thought Perpetuum was a brilliant bottling. And some of the older Kildaltons as well. And, and I know that that is not your preferred style of Ardbeg. So, so talk, talk to me about what the things you love about Ardbeg what attracts you to the distillery the most? So I don't want to say too much because this is one of my follow-up questions for part two oh, okay. with Dr. Okay. Bill. Okay, fair. Is exactly that. <laughs> is, and th- th- that's why I set the table asking him about 1970s Zardbeg and the, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the mythology that exists around that. Sure. Then moving into what I consider new or modern Ardbeg, Mm -hmm. where very young, something that I love, love, love. Mm -hmm. While I was looking over the Ardbeg shelf, I did find a bottle of Still Young, which it's not very young, but boy, that's not too bad for a week kicking the pants away from it. So I was quite excited. (laughs) I was quite excited to stumble upon that. And then, yes, I I do have an Ambesht in the back of the shelf as well, an open Ambesht. My still young is open as well. I'll I'll be honest about that. And so I want to get into this with with Dr. Bill. What's he seeing Mm. with modern Ardbeg. Mm. What's he seeing with with younger, right? What, what's what's the impetus behind Wee Beastie? Mm-hmm. You know, you've got the Anno, which is NES, non-age statement. You've got the Cori. You've got the Ugi, mm-hmm. right? The Ugadal and the Cori Vrekin, mm-hmm. non-age statement. What's he looking for? What's he seeing? And so I don't necessarily, I can answer it as to my personal preference, but that really speaks to all of Isla for me. For him, what's he seeing in the warehouses? Mm. What's he seeing with the distillate? What's he seeing in maturation? What's he seeing with additional maturation or finishing? This is all wrapped up in part two. And, and I will tell you right now, Joshua, when we are done with Dr. Bill <laughs> in that part two interview... <laughs> I hope he picks up on the fact that there's a part three. <laughs> I hope he acknowledges that because my questions will not be done yeah. at the end of part two. It, it's funny, you know, one of the things that I love about 
younger Ardbeg, modern Ardbeg, is that along with all of that that ashiness, there's a bright, almost key lime citrusy quality, this fruitiness that comes through that I absolutely love. I think it's glorious once you find it. However, some of these slightly older or softer style Ardbegs trade that citrus sweetness for a more industrial window putty clay oh, kind of oh, thing oh, going on oh, oh. and and I really I really enjoy that because I've not that modern art bag isn't unique it definitely is unique I'm not trying to say that I'm what I am trying to say is the softer style of art bags I think are more <sighs> are more identif- identifiable, at least from my palate, as, oh, yeah, that, that's, that's the art bag. That's the older art bag that I know, right? Like when you taste an older Beaumore, you know, 15 years to, to, to 20 and up, and all of a sudden the tropical fruits come out, and you say, that's a Beaumore because there's those tropical fruits that I'm looking for. And so I get the same thing with, with art bag, and that's... Even though I'm trading that fruitiness, that citrus quality that I love, it's almost like, you know, fitting into a, a, a worn shoe. It's just so comfortable, that, that older style. There's two distinct things that I want to say, and I, I hope I remember the second because I'm, I'm going to really be enjoying diving into the first. So part one for me is when I think of modern Ardbeg, mm-hmm. There are two distinct characteristics in there. One of them is chipotle pepper. Hmm. And another one is white chocolate, where there's a, a, a milky fattiness hmm. going on in there. Mm-hmm. And I did a whiskey dinner one time up in the Palouse with, with my very dear friend, Moscow Jim. And we did a, a white chocolate cheesecake paired with an art bag, and, and I even want to say we paired it straight up with the art bag ten. Okay, yeah. right, just straight up. Yeah, and the fattiness of the white chocolate cheesecake played so beautifully with the white chocolate mm. component that I get in modern art bag. Yeah, but then I also think about roller coaster, which which we touched on with Doctor Bill in the interview. Yes. Yeah. And and in roller coaster, I distinctly remember my tasting notes, and I thought I'd lost my mind when I was writing my tasting notes for yeah. roller coaster. And it wasn't until I saw John Hansel's notes that he and I pulled out a distinct quality um, that I thought was quite remarkable. Okay. So I remember writing my notes, and I got cheese and onion crisps and Kalamata olives for which bottling. The roller coaster? Roller coaster. Yeah. Yeah. And when I read John Hansel's notes, he talked about green olives. And I thought in my mind, if you took Kalamata olives and you crossed them with cheese and onion crisps, yeah. you would potentially get green olives. And and I thought that was such a remarkable note. And so when you talk about 
the industrial, the window putty, for me, that's a hard water note mm. in Highland whiskies. Famously, Glenglassa for me has that industrial. Sure. Sometimes Krigeliki will move over into that industrial. And so I never, ever associate what you're mm. talking about in modern Arbeg with Arbeg. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. So as you were talking about that Kalamata olive note or that green olive note i grabbed my bottle of roller coaster which mm-hmm. I, I mean i am happy to say is still about 95 percent mm. full and this is my third bottle of roller i'm coaster. coming to your house yes you are soon please and and i'm nosing the bottle and and i'm getting that it's almost like an olive tapenade there's like a oily fattiness going on behind exactly it. Yeah. yes a 100% olive tapenade spot on um so so then that brings me to my my second point here and correct me if i'm wrong did you and i cover this in the mailbag episode i feel like you and i've discussed this somewhat recently is it's interesting to me when i think back on our two palettes that went into business together and started selecting casks and releasing casks mm-hmm. together that you have a love of Glenmorangie mm-hmm. that that, I, that that we don't share, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, Glenmorangie is too soft. All the things you love about Glenmorangie are the things that don't attract me to Glenmorangie. Mm-hmm. It's soft. It's delicate. It's inviting. It's you know, easy, and I don't mean that in the pejorative. Mm-hmm. But there's there's components there. And so when you talk about the art bags that you like. They replicate that style. And yet, when you and I select casks, mm-hmm. we spend almost no time talking about the soft, the delicate, no. the subtle. That's not a thing that we're finding in cask samples of the distilleries that we're receiving. Mm-hmm. And so as a, and I would use the term couple, but earlier on in the podcast, you threw some shade on that as a couple who are (laughs) selecting casks together we don't get into the conversations of the things you like in Glamorangie and the things that I like in Arbeg being things that guide our palates instead we come to cask samples on their own merits and we select them on their own merits and so it's always interesting to me when we have these moments when you say, oh, I really like Nambesht, uh, and I'm kind of like, yeah, it never really hit the receptors. It never hit the right receptors in my mouth. Mm. And we beastie is a wee bit rough around the edges. It's younger. It's a bit fresher. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of like, yeah, I get you know these other components from it that don't really have me returning to No, it. I never said that about Wee Beastie. I love Wee well, Beastie. I was, well, I was putting words in your mouth. Let me just say this. <laughs> I have already polished off that heavy pour yeah, that it's, I it's, made. It's obvious, Jason. It's obvious you did. So let me, let, me, let me clarify. Yeah, please clarify. This is going to be important. Because it's, it's not as if... I, as I pour another healthy pour of Wee Beastie. It's not as if I don't like modern Ardbeg. It's mm-hmm. that I prefer the softer style. Having said that, you know, there was a period of time where there was Ugadal in my glass every night because that's all I was looking for. Ugi versus Kari, which one you got? <laughs> 
Corey. Corey all the way. I like the spice. Oh, okay. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's good. Because I, I'm Corey every day of the week. So, okay, good. I'm, I'm, good, good, good. I'm Corey every day of the week as well. However, if we're talking, and, and now we're getting really geeky here, but if we're talking early Oogadal, right? Not, not necessarily the committee release, though, though I did enjoy the, the, the committee. Uh, the oogling or whatever it was called. It's been it's been years, but the the earlier standard releases of Oogadol, where it was just like smacked in the face with some of that dank sherry, I just thought it was doing everything I wanted it to do, and I, and I'll I'll never forget the very first blog post I ever had was of Ardbeg Oogadol, and I talked about bloody band-aids and salt water and and wet leather jackets and 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 all of these things and i just found it to be so lovely and so intriguing and and so different and and and, you know i think everybody's palates changes evolves readjusts you know i'm just at a point in my life where i like my whiskeys not talking about the ones we bottle but i like a lot of our whiskeys a lot of the whiskeys I drink to be a, a bit softer in style. That's all. I like nuance. It's funny that you say that about liking nuance because I feel like I do too. And I feel like some of the mistakes I've made with some fill your own bottlings in distillery visitor centers mm, I know where you're going. is that you've got one second in which to taste it and make up your mind whether you want to buy a bottle, take mm-hmm. a bottle home, mm-hmm. open that up. And I'm starting to go back through some of the fill-your-owns. <laughs> Again, because we're not traveling, because I'm not adding to the fill-your-own <laughs> section of my shelves, uh-huh. I'm going back through the ones that I have previously filled. Yeah, And it's so interesting to encounter fill-your-owns that I remember tasting on the day at the distillery and thinking, oh yes, 100 times yes. And then I've brought it home and I've tasted it and I've gone, oh, that does one really big thing well. Mm-hmm. And there's not much else to it. And so those are fill your owns that I'm not really returning to. Unless I just want that big one blast, that singular blast all over again. Sure. And so I am going looking for, and I know when I say I really like young Islas, and I like them to tromp all over my tongue and all over my taste buds and beat them into submission, it's not just a singular aspect Mm. that does that. It's multiple. And sometimes... There's a little bit of cinnamon in there and sometimes it's white chocolate and sometimes it can be that sherry component and the dried fruits. Yep. Yep. And so I, I would say I'm I'm also looking for variety and and some some different interesting aspects. And when I do step back into the older and the softer I find that they're more likely to take on a singular presence on my palate. Wow. That's, it's, yeah, that's interesting. Really interesting. Mm-hmm. 
Oh my God! Oh, speaking speaking of speaking of Jason, and and I, I want to say this before we get into the the email that we that we want to read, or really, it's it's an Instagram message. But we've we've gotten requests recently, uh, people looking to hear how we select casks and maybe select casks live on mm. not live, but you mm. know, re- recorded on a podcast. And so, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. you know we might we might do. Uh, an episode in the near future, maybe a half episode when we get in some more samples. And, it, and it'll be good to explore this a little further because when you and I taste a whiskey for bottling, I think, judging by the conversation that we've just had, I think it's somewhat different from tasting a bottle that we've purchased, potentially. <sighs> I'm being careful with my response. All right, all right. Because we've talked both about selecting casks only for ourselves. Mm -hmm. We've also talked about recognizing the palate that the nation has. And to go selecting casks, yes, there's a lot going on when we select casks. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of considerations yes. going on when we select casks. And when we buy a bottle, yes, I think there's maybe a different set of criteria Correct. in place. Correct. Because my mind goes to not why did the company decide to sell this, but why did the master blender or those who select casks decide to put this into bottle. And you and I know, and we've made plenty of allusions to this, and and bless him, our our dear friend Gordon Bruce at Nocdu Distillery releasing Anna. Oh, yeah. We've we've talked about marketing departments plenty, (laughs) and we've talked about master blenders and distillery managers plenty, and, and how... Decisions are made in, ne- let's, I'm going to be very kind here and say, decisions are made in nebulous ways. Um, <laughs> but, the word nebulous is very nebulous. Have you, have you ever considered that? <laughs> <laughs> AKA, get a jail free card. So, and so, and that's what was so interesting to me in talking with Dr. Bill is he's got an idea of what he wants coming out with a Glenmorangie label or with an Ardbeg label. Mm -hmm. And really, writ large, one of our favourites, Glenmorangie isn't showing up in independent bottlings. An Ardbeg isn't showing up in independent bottlings. Can you find it? Yes. Are you drinking one right now? Potentially. But writ large you're not really seeing them. And so he's got a lot of control over what's coming out. And again, as to part two, that's an aspect that I want to follow up with him as well. Clearly, our big committee is massive, absolutely huge. And they're never going to put out enough bottles to satisfy the demands of the committee, mm-hmm. which has just grown beyond, I would imagine, anybody's wildest dreams. But here we've just had Ardbeg come out <laughs> with uh-huh. rye casks. Yeah. 
and we had black come out with New Zealand Pinot Noir casks. Mm -hmm. And so he, and I want to hear it from his own mouth, he has to be feeling like, what's the next trick we can pull with Ardbeg in what type of wood and how that affects how he looks at the stocks and how he thinks about that next big release Mm. and how you stay true and you and I talk about this plenty how you stay true to your distillery spirit while also placating or satisfying Mm -hmm. those who are looking for the next new thing so I've got that for him as well but oh gosh we're we're going way down the rabbit hole here should we should we pull up the nose and and head into an email I I don't think there's much news is there we're we're kind of in a holding pattern we're working diligently behind the scenes the next new thing is just around the corner let's move into an email that we couldn't squeeze into the mailbag episode I loved oh gosh it's so nice to just skip over something and go to the next thing I like that the message that we have here, Jason, it came in uh, by Instagram rather than email. And I hear that's a thing. <laughs> and it came from Harry on the Run. That's his uh, handle. Is that what they call it? Is that what the kids call it these days, a handle? Oh, yeah. I think the kids are heavily influenced by CB culture from the Smoking the Bandit years. <laughs> break a one nine, break a one nine. Hi, Joshua and Jason. I am a huge fan of your work and one of your avid podcast listeners. Oh, thank you. Harry on the run. Yep, much appreciated. I'm based in Melbourne, Australia. And then he he put in the little Australian flag there. Good day. I I almost culturally appropriated a people decided not to. I decided to take the high road, Jason, unlike you. That doesn't happen every day. <laughs> says, I'm based in Melbourne, Australia. Your podcast is keeping me sane during our 102 days of the strictest lockdowns during COVID peak in 2020. Just so you're aware, this message came in January 9. So, okay, yeah, they're way, they're well out of the, yeah, the danger zone. Yeah. They're reopened. They're having rugby matches and cricket matches and they're back to normal living rugby cricket shrimps on the barbie showing people that this is a knife that isn't a knife because this one's a knife oh my god the only thing you're missing here (laughs) is that's not a knife this is a knife and then you pulled it out the bag oh my goodness oh my lord this isn't offensive to australians and this is offensive to australians My favorite episode is you guys talking about things more than whiskey with Dave Broom. And you're going to love this part, Jason, because this is very, uh, very apropos. (laughs) It's a complimentary of Joshua. Those are the only things that I like in this world, (laughs) are things that are complimentary of Joshua. Uh, no, what the, what this is is it, it talks to our last our last conversation with with Dave Broom. That was a good that was a good last conversation. Gosh, talk about part two with with Bill and part potential part three with Bill Lumsden. Like, oh gosh, it's lovely having a direct line to Dave Broom and uh, and asking Dave to come back. So Indeed. hopefully we'll see him uh, before too much longer as well. A reappearance. Anyway. <laughs> 
It says, I met Dave Broom at the Whiskey Show in Melbourne before the dreaded lockdown started in March, and his family mm-hmm. got stranded in New Zealand. Remember that bit of the conversation? Mm-hmm. I remember that very well. I was in awe with your episode on bars and showcasing how a cafe owner turned it around in Seattle. And, and if memory serves, that he's talking about Christopher Gronbeck and the Barrel yep. Thief. Yep. Yep. Kudos to Gronbeck. He's yep. a good, good lad. Yes, I've, yes. I really miss him, actually. I miss not getting to see him during this lockdown. Same. Same. I work for Microsoft, so we will be moving to Seattle sometime in the middle of this year after things oh. settle down. I tell you, there's never been a better time to move to America. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually... Had you said that a few months back, I may not have agreed, but now, now I agree. Now I think it's okay. Anyway, Australia was a one-year gig, which became indefinite because of COVID. But one thing I am proud and excited to share is that I became a co-founder of AWAS. And now before I go on, Jason, what do you think AWAS stands for? And it's not AWAF would be something as a Frenchman. Um, this is A-W-A. And it's not A-W-B, which would be Alcoholics Without Borders. But it's... Give me the, give, give me the acronym again. A-W-A-S. Can I tell you very quickly that it's not actually an acronym? You know, an acronym is a collection of letters that can be pronounced as a word. And so NASA... Is an acronym. NASA, NATO, yeah, sure. But VSOP is an abbreviation. Well, I guess you could say AWAS. No. AWAS. No. So anyway, so this this abbreviation, A-W-A-S. Oh, gosh, W-A-S. I want W-A-S to be Western Australia. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I really did enjoy my own joke on that one. Um, I, I I don't know. What, what are we talking about? Uh, blah, 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 blah. Whiskey. W is whiskey. Yep. Yep. Well done. Uh, one of the A's is Australia. Yes, correct. Which one? The first one. Okay. Australian whiskey something. Oh, I, I don't know, Josh. Just tell me. Australian Whiskey Appreciation Society. Oh, nice, nice. Now, I didn't even think of the S being society. I was, uh, I was thinking Scotch on that, but then I thought, no, they probably drink more than Scotch. So that yeah. makes no sense. So. Well, it, it makes sense. You wouldn't get that. We're legally barred from using that word society. Anyway, so he started. <laughs> uh, so he became a co-founder of AWAS, which started as a bunch of folks meeting to talk whiskey. And now it's a real deal where we bottle our own juice under the AWAS label. That's fantastic. Well done, Harry. In these two years, I've learned so much about this terroir and the climate, and which makes it awesome to make whiskey. Mm-hmm. We have some real big producers, and then this is a parenthetical, nowhere compared to U.S. or Scotland, but decently big for Australia and New Zealand. And, and then he makes a list, and there's going to be seven here. Starward, which is uh, in Melbourne, just a mile away from where Harry is now. Archie Rose out of Sydney. 
and uh, they they make rye. Uh, he says they got got awarded best rye a couple of times. Sullivan's Cove out of Tasmania. Of course, we all know that name. Sullivan's. Yeah, very well. Yep. Uh, Bakery Hill out of Victoria. I've seen their bottlings. Never had their whiskey. Lark out of Tasmania, and and you probably know this about me, Jason. I'm a I'm a big fan of Lark. I like Lark quite a lot. Oops, um, that was that was explosive. Did you pick that up? <laughs> I did. Hartwood, and Hartwood is a cult IB. It's an independent bottler based in Hobart or Hobart. Yes, I, I don't know how they would pronounce that. Yes, Hobart, Hobart, and then finally, yep. Old Kempton out of Tasmania. And so, all of that, Jason, was a lead-up to his question. Well, before his question, let me just say, hmm. I finished my second pour of my Wee Beastie here, hmm. and I haven't been holding back on my pours. And so, with the mention of Starward by Harry on the Run, mm-hmm. I poured a Drammer's exclusive Starward into my glass. And I'm going to tell you here, I'm, I'm cheating I just poured it into the same glass that just had Wee Beastie because I'm not ready to give up on the Wee Peaty backbone just yet, but my Star Word has gone into that glass. Well done. It looks beautiful. Oh, yeah, the color is gorgeous. It's, it's a lovely, lovely whiskey. Star Word makes delicious stuff. Yeah. So with a, with a full glass, a fully charged glass, I am, I'm ready for this question. So Harry asks... Are you following the whiskey makers and market in the Southern Hemisphere? Moreover, do you know that people in Australia are crazy over whiskey? Literally fanatics. Mm. I would love for you guys to do an episode on Australian whiskey makers or overall spirits, because there's some excellent gin makers here as well. Check out Four Pillars Shiraz Gin. And then finally he says... Again, thank you for entertaining us, informing us, and educating us to the wonderful world of distilled spirits. Your fan, Hardik Meta. That is brilliant. Oh, Hardik. Yeah. Harry yeah. on the run. That's a magnificent, magnificent message. Thank you ever so much. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And Now, Harry, you, you may or may not have heard the episode, but we did interview Lee Atwood from Backwoods Distilling mm-hmm. out of Yakandanda. Yakandanda. And and that was That's a, not a Yakandanda. This is a Yakandanda. <laughs> Sorry. I, it's one of my favorite words in all the world. I really will of a day sitting quietly in my office by myself just say Yakandanda out loud. I just mm. love it. I I would literally Move to Yakindanda so I could just tell people, oh yeah, I'm from Yakindanda. All sounds like an amazing community. But anyway, I digress. But if you're from Yakindanda, do you say, I'm from Yakindanda? Or do you just here's say, the thing I, yeah, I'm from Yakindanda? You just move here's on. the thing I, I love, I love about the Australians is they've never met a word they couldn't shorten. And so I just imagine if I moved to Yakindanda, I would just tell people, yeah, I'm from Yaka, and people would know which place I was talking about. Oh, see, I I would say I'm from Danda. Oh, well, you do think it's down there, so. (laughs) (sighs) Harry brings up, A, 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 a really good question and a really good point, right? Because here we are, we're, we're now in our fifth season, and we are 
134 episodes in. Now, granted, 28 of them are uh, are extra, extra episodes where we're not focusing on producers or interviews or anything like that. So let's call it 110, just a nice, safe, round number there. I have 110 episodes, and only one of them has been dedicated to uh, an Australian yeah. producer. Yep, yep. yep. Right, so we're definitely lacking, and 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 I I take Harry, I take your comment to be a really good reminder that some lovely and wonderful whiskeys are being made down in Australia, down in New Zealand, and we need to be looking at that. We need to be paying attention to it. Well, and and I I agree with you wholeheartedly. I also would go so far as to say, I wouldn't have been surprised if you and I had ended up in Australia and New Zealand towards the end of 2020 or been planning it into 2021. Yeah. You know, yep. you, you and I desperately want to go down there and and see Lee and, and Bree, uh, his wife, in person mm-hmm. and see the new facility at Backwoods. We also want to go to Tasmania visit those producers on Tasmania as well mm-hmm. and you know go around the, the the mainland of Australia go over to New Zealand I think speaking out of school here mm-hmm. I think the hardest part of you and I going down there will be leaving our wives and kids at home oh. I, I you know you and I do a lot of trips huh. that are whiskey based yeah. where our wives are kind of like Okay, you're you're off to Scotland again. You're okay, you're off to the Netherlands. You're off to Spain, Canada, parts of the United States. And they kinda let it slide a little bit. I know Scotland is 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 ideal for, for both of our wives and our kids. Indeed. Taking the time to fly deep into the southern hemisphere, I Gosh, I think we'd be in big trouble when we got home See, if we hadn't taken the wives and the kids. When when you say the, the, the toughest time, the most difficult part would be leaving our wife and kids, I thought you were going to say uh, leaving Hobbiton because that's what I plan on do- When we go down there, because we will be going <laughs> down there, Jason, we need to go to Hobbiton. Jason, I, I just, it's I, I need it. I need it. Have you have you seen the clip of Graham Norton talking to Elijah Wood on the Graham Norton show? And Elijah Wood is so sincere about the existence of Hobbiton. And Graham Norton just rips the piss out of him <laughs> for believing Hobbiton to be a real place with real hobbits. And Elijah Wood does not give up on the fact. Yeah. That Hobbiton is now a real place that one can visit. It's, it's, it's a bit of awkward television, but um, but I I think of you and I think of us, and I think of our families somehow making it down there, and and Hobbiton would be essential. My my kids are also really are really into wildlife. My wife is a wildlife ecologist, 
and a chance for them to see some of the deadliest creatures on Earth that live in Australia, they are excited to wow. go and see things in the wild yeah. that could kill them as soon as look at them. So, yeah, there's there's a lot to there's a lot to take us down there. We are we're aware of the scene down there without, in all honesty, knowing very much about it. But I'd love to learn more. Love to explore more. You know who but knows? But you can just... You, here's the thing. And I, I know you've got a point to make here. Mm-hmm. Was it January of, of 19? I think it was. You and I, who... We both live in the United States. We flew to Jerez, Spain, for a two-day trip. Mm-hmm. That's insane. Yeah. That's absolutely insane. Yep. If we fly to Australia and New Zealand we can't go for seven days I don't even know if we can go for two days obviously if you leave the United States you got a bank on two weeks quarantine no matter where you go in the world but you know we really need to make a significant trip of going to the southern hemisphere and I see us taking on an Airbnb or a couple of Airbnbs and and making it a month, mm. you know, mm. it's gonna have to be a long time. And you know, talking about you know getting lost in the world of logistics, you have pets. We have pets. <laughs> you can't just leave your pets, right? Ciao. So, you know, the can openers in the in the drawer. And so, the reason I make this point is when I was in my my late teens and my early twenties, and I spent time touring Europe and touring the United States. Mm-hmm. We would go on the road for three weeks, you know, tops. Three weeks you'd be on the road. Mm -hmm. And then you'd be thinking, oh, I want to get home and I want to get a real cup of tea and I miss my mum's cooking and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And and you'd meet couples from Australia Mm -hmm. and you'd say, oh, how long you been gone? And their answers would vary from three months to nine months to 18 months, you know. And if you leave the Southern Hemisphere, if you leave Australia, New Zealand, you come up into the Northern Hemisphere, you come and you see it all. And you see both Europe and North America and potentially South America uh, and potentially, you know, Christ, Asia on your way home or your way leaving. You see it all. Mm -hmm. And so to go to Australia, New Zealand for two weeks, three weeks, I don't think it makes enough sense, especially with how many people you and I would have to visit and how many distilleries we'd have to see. Yeah, you know, I, I if we were to head down there solely for business reasons, I could see us doing a week there. And I, it may be a bit uncomfortable and we may be bouncing around a bit here and there, but we, I think we could definitely make it happen. It wouldn't be ideal, but I think that we can make it happen. And... The point that I wanted to make earlier, you took us so far away that my point seems... <laughs> Bring us back. Bring us back. Just make a different point. Well, you, you had mentioned before that, and, and this is a very true statement, we don't know enough about whiskeys from that southern hemisphere, from Australia, from Tasmania, from New Zealand. We, don't, we simply don't know enough, but we do know someone 
who knows quite a lot, Holly Sidewand, who's spent a tremendous amount of time down there getting to know producers, getting to know their operations. And we have Cameron Taylor mm-hmm. of Discovering Drams, yeah, sure, another great supporter of the podcast. And he's doing his whiskey tastings down there as well. And then, of course, we've got Lee Atwood, Lee Ann Bree, with Backwoods, who could certainly put us in contact. I I just think, listen, I'm six foot two. If you put me on a a plane to Australia for, I I, I don't remember exactly how long the journey is, but I think it's three days. Um, If you put me in a plane for any amount of time that's longer than flying from the East Coast to the United States to Glasgow or London... I'm really not going to want to get on a plane anytime soon. And if you make me go to Australia and New Zealand for seven days, I'm going to be grouchier than I normally am, Joshua. Hmm. So let's pack up the fam, let's buy a house, and let's move there for 18 months and really immerse ourselves, really commit to this. Do you know? <laughs> well, here, here's the thing. So I heard every word that you said, and I acknowledge it. Right, you're six foot two. You don't want to be in a plane for longer than six to seven hours because you're grouchy and you'll be even grouchier, so on and so forth. However, when you mentioned Lee and Bree, my mm-hmm. head immediately went to imagine Lee and Bree, and Lee and Bree, and Lee and Bree, and Lee and Bree, and Lee and Bree. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. <laughs> Yak and danda. Oh yeah! Oh, you brought it home. You brought it home. Well done, sir. Oh, I love it when you bring it home. That makes me happy. You're welcome. So, I think that's it, Jason. I think this episode has come to a close. Again, thank you to the good Dr. Bill Lumsden for for taking the time to meet with us. In advance, thank you to uh, to Billy as well for setting up a second conversation so we can we can finish the uh, the interview as it were continue the interview we will not be finishing continuing the interview <laughs> thank you to it's a trilogy come on talk to oh, peter yes. jackson yeah trilogy sell peter jackson will tell you that yeah is there anybody else who might be able to tell you that i don't think so trilogies yeah i can't think of any i don't no, I can't think of any other trilogies. Oh, <laughs> our, our listeners are either shouting at their ham radios <laughs> names of trilogies that are clearly obvious. They all grabbed their 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 CBs like Breaker Breaker One Nine, Star Wars, Star Wars, Smoking the Bandit trilogy. Is it? The third movie is not worth watching. The second movie is terrible. The third is not what worth watching. The first is canon. But anyway, moving on. How, how can people reach us, Joshua, before we get out of here? Well, how can people reach us? They can reach us the, the same way Harry did. And, and thanks again to, to Harry for reaching out. They can reach out to us via Instagram. We, we're always looking at messages there. Granted, a bit slower than we would if you were to send us an email. Now, we look at emails quite a lot. So you can email us questions at onenationunderwhiskey.com. You can search us on the Facebooks. Just look for One Nation Under Whiskey, and you'll find our page. You'll find our group, and you can send us a message through there. And if you're desperate, if you find yourself on Twitter 
A, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry you find yourself there. And, and B, if, if you do, you can find us at One Nation Whiskey. And of course, and as always, we never use that, that letter E in the word whiskey. We spell it the way the majority of the world spells it, without the E. So if you want to reach out to us, just make sure you do not spell whiskey with an E. There you go. It's all true because it rhymes. <laughs> Nothing rhymed there. Did something no, rhyme? It's, what, what's his name? It's not Vesuvius, but it sounds like that from, uh, from the Lego movie. He's voiced by Morgan Freeman. Oh, the wizard. Vitruvius? Vitruvius? Yeah. yeah, I forget his name, but he said, and it's all true because it rhymes. Yes, 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 yes. Such yes. a great line. <laughs> Such a great line. So as always, I hope our listeners will chase us down, will reach out to us. We love hearing from Harry on the run. We've loved hearing from Cameron Taylor. We've loved hearing from everybody who's reached out. Mm. Please, please seek us out. This is a community, just like the nation is a community, one nation under whiskey is an extension of that community. That it is. But until next time, Joshua, we should clang some glassware and call it an episode. But as I grab for my sample bottles, here's to season five and all who may ride upon her. God, yours just sounds so terrible. Oh, it's like, you know what this sounds like? It sounds like two old people kissing and their dentures just happen to clank together. Yep. Nope, that's how old people kiss, Jason. You don't want to be doing that. Try it again. But Joshua, mm-hmm. Joshua, we are old people. This is how we kiss. Do you have dentures? Oh, there we go. Listen to that. <laughs> Every word is permissible except for the the c word. But feel free to right. use that. I'll just beep it out. Yeah, nah. It, it, you have to be in very particular company to be able to use that. I, I agree with that. Although That's I have true. been in certain cultures, and I remember working with a, a young female Irish brand ambassador, and she said that where she grew up, the c word was just routine. It was normal. Mm-hmm. Which right. quite yep. surprised me. But I hear what you're saying. I will not use the word <laughs> shivis at all during this interview, okay? <laughs> Much appreciated. I appreciate being sensitive to the to the issue at hand. So. <laughs> okay. 